BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Well, if you're one of the hundred plus million people who watched the Netflix movie Don't Look Up... Maybe you have some fear of meteorites or other things from space crashing into Earth and causing the complete destruction of our planet. It's not a new trope. And from the viewership, it seems like we are interested. But what if the things that come from space don't destroy life, but give birth to it? That's what Greg Brennica is arguing. He's a staff scientist and cosmochemist at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, And his research has appeared in Science, Nature, and PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He's won fellowships to study the early solar system and is essentially a leader in understanding how things from space affect us down here on Earth. He has a new book out, and it's called Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. So let's find out why Greg thinks that meteorites not only set us on the path to becoming human, but also shaped human culture. Greg Brennica, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. So there was this movie that came out on Netflix called Don't Look Up. I don't know if you've seen it, but some like 150 million people have. (laughs) Are you one of those? I am one of those. Yes, Uh I did see it uh, and I liked it. (laughs) Um, So for those for those of our listeners who aren't part of that large group of people, um, it's essentially about a comet that is going to impact the Earth and end life as we know it. Um, And people don't seem to care. (laughs) So I wondered if watching that movie may, made it made you question your choice to write a book called Impact. <laughs> well, it was certainly good timing or bad timing, however you look at it. Yeah, I, I, I learned about that movie probably about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, uh, I guess, whenever it came out. And uh, I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. Uh, this is, this, obviously, it took a little bit longer to write the book. Uh, or I started a lot longer ago than I found out about it. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely funny timing. 
Um, But in your book, it does sound as if you recognize that not everyone spends all day, every day worrying about meteorite impacts. Although sometimes after reading your book, I kind of feel like, you know, there are times when you 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 kind of think about this and you're like, why aren't we worrying about this all the time? Because it seems like it could happen at any time and anywhere, at least small ones. Um, So let's talk a little bit about kind of the the relative risk of an impact event that would completely obliterate the Earth. And then once we get that out of the way, we can talk about all the other reasons <laughs> the small the stuff, right? are important. Right, right. Well, I, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but uh, the chances of us being wiped out during our lifetime is, is quite low. So it's fun to make movies about this, and they're fun movies. Uh, you know, certainly Don't Look Up was was the most recent, but you know, Armageddon, Deep Impact, things like this are, have been part of Hollywood for quite some time. Um, so it is something we should worry about, and we are worrying about. NASA certainly has a planetary protection program, but you know, realistically and statistically, we're not talking about high chances. Um, so most people continue to go about their everyday lives and and don't worry too much about a giant asteroid getting ready to smash into us. So that's that's okay. Uh, although, of course, there have been many little ones. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of like, how come we still don't hear stories of like, it seems like with some regularity, there should be some story, like we should know at least one person that like, you know, had a space rock hit them. I don't know. Right? Well, people are not that large. And uh, you know, so that's one thing. You know, again, we get we get down to the st- uh, statistics and uh, easy for me to say. Uh, so we get down to statistics and, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, people on the planet, but they take up a very small amount of space. And, you know, we have a lot of meteorites falling, but the chances of them hitting humans is is actually quite low. There's been two recorded, really verified events in which meteorites hit humans. And neither of those people actually died because they were quite small meteorites. One got a pretty impressive bruise on her hip. But uh, other than that, we don't have a ton of evidence for for meteorites killing people or, or hitting people in history. I mean, that just seems remarkable to me, given that like people get hit by lightning with some frequency. <laughs> and I guess lightning is just a much more frequent event, but not any bigger than one of these small meteorites, I would think. Yeah, you know, if I had to choose between one or the other, I'm not sure which one I would take. Uh, I guess as a meteoriticist, I'll go ahead and say I'll take the meteorite, but I don't know if that's true or not. So there's a timeline in your book. And by the way, you draw these really great cartoons, um, which make make me laugh almost every time. Like Sometimes I started finding myself like moving forward in the book to just get to the cartoons. Um, but that, I think, says more about me than about anything else. <laughs> no, um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, you know, you... You outline how, in some ways, the meteorite, I guess, is it a comet, an asteroid? We should probably define those terms. Um, <laughs> that it may, you know, made the dinosaurs go extinct, but paved the way for mammals. Um, so why don't we start that with that story? First, help me with the definition of what we're talking about, space stuff falling on us. Well, they're all basically the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you don't have to worry about any of them, but all of them are basically the same thing. So comets are mostly water. People think of them as like a dusty snowball. So they're looking at, you know, 90% water, something like that. And then you talk about asteroids, meteors, and meteorites, and that's basically one object. It just depends on where it is. And it's really confusing, and I don't expect anyone to care but asteroids are while they're in outer space, meteors are while they're flying through the atmosphere, and then a meteorite is after it lands. So it can be one object, three names. The nomenclature is not all that important. It's, it's just a rock from space. Okay. So space rock hits Earth, dinosaurs die. 
Yes. Um, so yeah, tell us about. <laughs> That's a good uh, summary. <laughs> <laughs> T- tell us a little bit about sort of you know yeah like I mean it's a, it was a pretty important event in the evolution of at least our species, if not on life on Earth, and it, it was kind of surprising to me that that seems to only have happened once in your timeline. But yeah, so tell us a little bit about why why that particular meteorite was was important and 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 what is it like three point five billion years? We don't have more of them. Yeah, so the Earth's about four and a half billion, and life has existed for about three and a half billion of that, probably. So you're you're right on track. Why haven't we had more? Well, you know, we have had a lot of meteorite impacts. Large life hasn't existed for that long. So we're only talking about, you know, a couple hundred million years for large life. So we had microbes for the first, you know, kind of two billion um, small things creeping around. So they're not going to be as greatly affected by meteorite impacts. You know, so we've got a, a lot shorter amount of time than the entire history of the planet that we're talking about. And also, you know, large events don't happen that often. That's the other thing. You know, what the what made the dinosaur killing event, I guess, so so interesting and important was that, you know, it, it really did essentially wipe out kind of the apex, you know, animals on the planet and just kind of took them out and paved, like you said, paved the way for mammals to take over. And mammals existed before, but you know, as I mentioned in the book, they really weren't anything more than little furry snacks. Uh, they were about, you know, the biggest mammals at the time of the dinosaurs were, you know, gerbils and small things like this. Um, so there's little little warm snacks for the dinosaurs. But once those dinosaurs are gone, you know, mammals basically can expand and take over the entire planet, and which they did to quite impressive effect, I would say. And one of my favorite parts of the story is like how the Alvarez brothers, I think they were brothers, right? They weren't a father. Uh, father, son, actually. Father, son, father, son. Okay, sorry. Uh, how they discovered uh, this possibility. Tell us that story. I just think it's really just a kind of, this is why you should become a geologist story. Yes, man, there's so many of those stories out there too. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot of people were kind of looking for the reasons why the dinosaurs went extinct. I mean, it was pretty clear that we didn't have dinosaurs anymore, but there's these giant fossils around that you can reconstruct and see that these things used to exist. So, you know, how did this happen? And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of speculation. There was a lot of different theories. Uh, and then, you know, geologists, heroes to the rescue, uh, come in and, and basically find this really thin layer of iridium-rich material. And then that probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but iridium is an element. It's a metal that exists in meteorites in very high concentrations. And in the Earth's crust, it's very low. It's almost entirely absent in the Earth's crust because all of it went to the core when the Earth formed. So the fact that right at the time that dinosaur fossils basically go away, there's this meteorite uh, iridium-rich layer that encircles the planet uh, at the exact same time. So that's you know essentially kind of your smoking gun of, of what the source of the dinosaur demise was. And that's kind of what the Alvarez family was, was finding and looking at in various parts of the world. And you have these like just these great images of just this like, you know, tiny sliver. It was the first time when I kind of like got it like, oh, yeah, they probably were looking at this and they saw this sliver and they came to this, you know, discovery. And it completely I mean, now like children's books are filled with this story. It's just kind of an amazing thing. It is. It really is. I mean, it really is just one of those observations. You know, if you do it enough times in in a bunch of different places, it all points you to the same to same answer, and you know, with that, of course, the importance of technology and being able to measure what elements are in there. You know, that's that's certainly a big aspect of that. And and this was around the time we were starting to be able to do these types of measurements at very high quality. 
Um, so, you know, it's not just people making very important observations. It's also the technology at the time being able to make the measurements that go along with the observations. So you also kind of talk a little bit about um, the formation of our solar system and, and the different parts of it and the role that, you know, essentially, I guess, asteroids and, and, and various other satellite bodies have in, in doing that. So can you kind of like walk us through a brief history of like the formation of the moon and sort of the planets as we know them and sort of just give us a sense of like the physics of how that happened? So the formation of the solar system is, you know, something that I certainly spent a lot of my time thinking about and studying. And this is certainly an active area of research for a lot of people. But the, the basics are is that you start with a large cloud of gas and dust. Uh, and this is, you know, kind of a molecular cloud. This is what people see in, you know, the, the famous pictures of the pillars of creation from Hubble telescope. And, you know, these really cool gaseous clouds. So this is kind of where we started before we had a sun or any planets. This thing collapses. Um, possibly due to some sort of shock wave or something like this. But either way, it, it starts collapsing. It does this very quickly because gravity start, once gravity gets going, it starts, uh, it goes very quickly. And the sun formed, you know, within a couple hundred thousand years. Uh, planets started forming very shortly after that, maybe some of them contemporaneously, uh, because this is a very rapid process of, of gravity forming these large bodies. You know, so this is, this is kind of what sucks up most of the material is, is, is planet formation. Some of these planets don't really grow that large, and they end up uh, being kind of stuck in small planet territory or planetesimals, and that's where most of our meteorites come from, is these planets that didn't really grow big enough. They just kind of got, you know, very, they just grew to a small size and then got busted up in the, in the rearrangement of planets. Um, and most of that stuff, while it formed from the sun all the way out, you know, beyond the order, orbit of Saturn now, it all got mixed up and got pushed into the uh, asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. And that's the source of most of our meteorites now. But it's nice because it allows us to study stuff that happened in the very early solar system from inside you know, the, the disk from near the sun to all the way out in the outer disk. So that's really fortunate for us to be able to study this type, these types of materials. And we can study them because they're closer to us than, say, the, the, the large giant planets. Yeah, they're closer to us. And, and then, of course, we receive samples of them. So they're closer to us. They're, in, you know, most of their parent bodies, as we always, always say, uh, meteorites are just small chips off of their parent bodies. And these get knocked off of one another as, you know, they kind of run into each other in the asteroid belt. And, and yes, exactly. We're able to, to study these because we receive them, you know, from collisions from the asteroid belt. And our moon is kind of special, right? Tell us a little bit about the special thing about our moon. It is quite special, yes. Uh, it is very large compared to most other moons uh, in the solar system and, and probably in other stellar systems as well. And large, not just in a, on a grand scale, but in relationship to its kind of planet. Uh, you know, the Earth-Moon system, as we like to call it, they're kind of basically two planets almost uh, because the moon is so large relative to the Earth. And a lot of, a lot of other planets have moons, but the moons are very, very small uh, comparatively. This is important to know the relative size difference because it kind of helped us get an idea about how the moon actually formed because it's such a large satellite compared to earth. You couldn't just capture, you know, something that was flying toward the earth. The, the mechanics don't work. So the way this had to form is that you had to have a very large meteorite impact on earth, totally flash melted the planet. And then the moon basically formed from the debris of that large impact that happened very early in, in earth history. I mean, it's kind of like, well, here's a here's another example of an, you know, species ending, planet ending event, and it's just hanging out, making our tides go in and out <laughs> as a reminder. 
<laughs> yep. Yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> I don't know it if would've... you've read uh, uh, Neil Stevenson's book, um, Seven Eves. Is that something that you've read? Anyway, I have not read that. Okay. Our listeners yeah. will know it's one of my favorite books. But one of the premises there is that um, essentially the moon gets hit by an asteroid and starts to break up. Now, what would happen if that happened? Like, forget uh, impact onto <laughs> our planet. I want to hear from you, Greg. What would happen <laughs> if our moon started to break up? Well, uh, bad things. I can already, I don't know really what would happen, but I'm sure it wouldn't be good. Uh, has, has that for a succinct answer? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, the, he, it's, it's seven eaves for a reason because there are <laughs> seven people who survive. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. There wouldn't be many. (laughs) Sorry, that was a massive spoiler alert for any of our listeners who have not read the book. Um, (laughs) But you should read it anyway. It's really fascinating. But I I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, so, you know, if, if it wasn't for our moon and this event, like, would life have been possible on Earth? Well, probably not. And the reason I say this is because we have something that's very similar that we can look at as an analog, and that's Venus. So Venus is our sister planet. Uh, It's about the same size. It's not that different in distance from the sun. So, you know, a lot of conditions should be about the same for their relative developments as planets. And Venus is completely uninhabitable um, for life as we know it. It's got a crushing atmosphere. Uh, It's the hottest surface temperature of any planet. Uh, It's got 96% 96% CO2 atmosphere. It's, it's just unlivable. And Earth probably was on a similar track as Venus until that moon forming impact happened. And, and this is why I think it's so important that we had that happen is because it basically knocked off the atmosphere that was existing at the time. So this is runaway greenhouse. We have a ton of volcanoes. Venus had a ton of volcanoes kind of spewing out all this sulfuric acid and carbon dioxide and all these things. And, you know, if, if we go through that for 150 million years, uh, we've probably developed a pretty impressively thick atmosphere, much like Venus has. But that moon-forming impact basically reset the entire planet. It knocked all of that atmosphere off. So you can basically say, okay, goodbye, let's start over, let's start fresh. And of course, you know, flash melting the entire planet, you wouldn't necessarily think it was a really great thing, um, but it actually set the stage for life to develop on Earth after that. So... You quote Carl Sagan, and probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with this idea that, you know, we are all made of star stuff. Um, You yourself are a cosmochemist, which I would love to learn more about that term. And so tell us a little bit about sort of like the stuff of stars and meteorites and how that relates to us as living beings and how you study that. I know that's a lot of question, but... <laughs> that's all right. Well, I'll start off with the, the origin of cosmochemists. It's basically just a made-up word to make us sound important. You know, we don't want to be lumped in with just normal geologists. You know? Or astrobiologists, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. you got to come up with something <laughs> a little more clever. Uh, so, yeah, we do cosmochemistry, right? <laughs> but, yeah, to, your, to the second part of your question, which I, I think was, was kind of dealing with the star stuff, I kind of like to think of... The solar system, the galaxy, you know, I guess the universe entirely is this giant recycling program. And I try not to get hung up on time scales because, you know, geologists think on time scales are much more vast than most most people who don't do geology. So we're talking about billions of years. You know, that carbon atom that is, you know, in your glass of, or your cup of coffee, that's something that probably came from that was made in a star system six billion years ago. So this is just something that is part of the process. You know, every atom that we have was made in some star at some point in our previous history uh, as as a galaxy. So that's kind of the idea of the star stuff. And then of course, you know, meteorites are capturing, 
you know, that, that molecular cloud that I mentioned earlier, they're capturing kind of a, a primitive version of that molecular cloud that has never been melted or it's, it's never been really changed from that point. So I, that probably doesn't answer your question at all, but I rambled on for a little while, if that helps. Yeah, I, I liked it. No, no. I mean, I, you know, I think that the, I get the idea that all the kind of atoms that make us up were at some point somewhere else in the universe. I think that there's also some idea that life wouldn't have been possible unless it came from, you know, some extraterrestrial thing. And so I, I wondered if you could speak to that theory, the idea that it was like a meteorite impact that created the first conditions for life. Is that is there any evidence that suggests that's that that that's true? Or really, is it just a matter of, well, we're made of very old stuff um, because, you know, that's how that's what gets recycled versus like Earth existed and then something from outside Earth barreled down, which makes a much better, you know, movie version of this. <laughs> and boom, life began. Right. Well, I, <laughs> I will say that you're, you're definitely correct in that, you know, we get the ingredients um, from the stars. Uh, you know, from from previous generations. Um, and, but it goes far beyond that. It's not just that those ingredients were created, you know, five, six, seven billion years ago, and then we just kind of put them together. Uh, I think one of the important things that meteorites bring to the equation that led to life on Earth, and I'm not saying that the meteorites brought extant life, there weren't little worms in there, there weren't, you know, wallabies or anything like this that are riding on uh, meteorites and landed on Earth, but but meteorites actually brought organic materials. When I found this out in graduate school for the first time, it totally blew my mind that you can actually form, you know, nucleotide pairs in our DNA and in our RNA in outer space. And, and we find these in meteorites and, and tons of organic a of uh, amino acids, tons of ketones, different amines, you know, alcohols, different, different types of bioessential organic molecules can actually form in outer space. And they form in outer space, they're collected in meteorites, and then they're brought to the planet by you know, meteorite delivery. So I guess the way I see it is that no, life, life on Earth probably wouldn't be possible with, without meteorites. And that's largely because of the ingredients that they delivered. They probably delivered the entire amount of our biosphere in organic material early in Earth's history. I mean, that, that makes me appreciate DoorDash a, a lot more. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's say I took a meteorite the size of, you know, like a rock the size of my hand. And then I just took like a regular rock from Earth the size of my hand. Are you saying that there are more like organic building blocks in the meteorite than there would be in any other given piece of rock? Or or is it just remarkable that there are any amino acids or kind of, you know, complex molecules in the meteorite? So... From a geologic perspective, it totally matters on what type of rock you're talking about from Earth. Because if you talk about, you know, fresh lava from Hawaii, for example, there's no organics in there at all. It's too hot. They can't survive. You know, organic materials totally break down above, you know, a couple hundred degrees uh, Celsius. So if you've got a fresh rock from Hawaii um, that just, just forms, there's no organics in it. You know, but if you take, of course, a clay from, you know, the bottom of a lake, then you're going to be loaded with organics. But those all came from the earth. They didn't come from anywhere outside the earth. What I find to be really fascinating is that the, the biomaterials that are being brought from outer space were formed in outer space. So hopefully that kind of gives you the distinction there. It does, especially if you think about like, well, so the lava on the volcano in Hawaii, it, it's like the conditions there seem to have either prevented the formation of or killed the existence of, you know, or, or destroyed, I should say not killed because it's not really alive, like organic material, but yet something that could survive, you know, moving through space where the conditions are also not optimal, <laughs> um, seemingly, like without being broken down into its, you know, into its inorganic materials or, or parts. Yeah. And I, I'm not an organic chemist, so I won't put on that hat because I don't own that hat. But one of the big things about organic molecules is heat. The heat totally destroys them. If you get, like I said, above a couple hundred degrees C, they go away, they break down into their individual components. But on the other side of the spectrum, in very cold temperatures, when you're at, you know, kind of close to absolute zero, so negative 200 plus C, you, you can actually form these things. And they actually form when you've got things like carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen just kind of floating around, which they exist everywhere in the cosmos. They kind of bind in ice and then you have uv radiation that hits those and that reaction actually forms these complex organic molecules so the difference there is the fact that really cold temperatures actually can, can produce these biologic materials or at least biologically essential precursors uh, and hot temperatures destroy them hmm. so i think that's the major difference between you know like the the analogy with the volcano and then the meteorite uh, is the volcano is totally destroying any organic type materials, whereas in outer space, they're actually being created. So um, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, on the image on your cover of your book, the um, meteorites look like they're balls of fire. So <laughs> yeah, wow. Right? That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> uh, but but uh, the insides of those are actually quite cold. So when a meteorite actually lands on the ground, you know, people see that fireball. That fireball exists only on the outer one millimeter of the surface of that meteorite. So actually when a meteorite lands, you know, that outer portion might have been warm for just, you know, the, the split second that it passed through the atmosphere. But the inside of that meteorite is actually very, very cold, you know, ice cold, uh, you know, probably negative 200 C, something like that, the, the temperatures that are found in outer space. So, you know, that, that outer portion is what causes the fireball. It's not the inside of the, it's not the entire meteorite actually, you know, catching fire or anything like that. 
But that's a, that's a very good observation and a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, sticking to the cover of your book. So for our listeners, uh, Greg Brennica's book is Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. I think we've covered the life part. Let's get to culture. What is the relationship between rocks from space and human culture? Right. So humans certainly evolved over the last, you know, couple hundred thousand years, uh, depending on where you draw the line. And, you know, for a good chunk of this, there wasn't a ton going on uh, as far as light pollution. So you can imagine that people paid a little bit more attention to the sky. And, uh, you know, as they were developing culture, as they're developing religion, large fireballs, comets, uh, meteorite impacts, they have very, very important I hate to use the word impact, but they, they have very important impacts on societies that see these things uh, happen. And it really caused a lot of inflection points throughout history, particularly in a lot of religions, uh, when you had large meteorite impacts or a fire fireball or a comet. Um, and, and that's kind of what I talk about as, as far as the culture, about how you know, the, the ancient Egyptians looked at, at meteorites uh, and how it formed their culture and, and changed their language and how they used them as, as decorative ornaments as, and, you know, these types of things. And, 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 and other cultures that have uh, kind of used meteorites as very important parts of their culture. What are some of the other ways that meteorites have affected our, the development or the evolution of our culture? Right. So I, I mentioned earlier about the, uh, you know, ancient Egyptians and, and how they, you know, worship the skies and things like this. But, but it's not just, you know, kind of the more ancient cultures uh, that, that were influenced by meteorites. If you look at, you know, times like the, in the Roman times, uh, there's a really interesting story where the Romans actually worshipped a meteorite as their primary deity uh, for about four years. And I, and I found this to be a really interesting story about kind of how that meteorite came to be, you know, the god of of uh, Roman culture for for a few years. And it's it's a it's a very George R. R. Martin story in which the, the emperor ends up being, you know, beheaded and thrown into the river. You know, so it's it's a pretty interesting, interesting little nugget of history. Um, but I just found that to be quite interesting how how meteorites were the main god of Rome for for quite some time. Yeah, I I had not heard that particular part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then of course you know Christianity, uh, Islam—they all have have major major inflection points. Um, you know, the people have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the cities that were you know smited and destroyed by God, and and there's pretty decent evidence that that wasn't actually a deity that did it, but but a meteoritic airburst. So there's a lot of these interesting stories that exist in you know Western religions as well as as uh, as various other religions that that are kind of come back to cosmic connections with with meteorites. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if something falls from the sky that it would be an important event. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Things things might be pretty boring on a day-to-day uh, you know, level and and then when you've got a major event that happens that makes a huge boom and you know, blows up a bunch of sand or something that could that could really change change your week, I would say. So one of the things that I think is probably hard in your job is finding samples to study. So, um, you know, as, as we mentioned at the top, it's not every day that, you know, a meteorite falls and, you know, it hits somebody or gets, gets seen. Um, and, and you've, they're probably, you know, the, the craters that we know of, like those are probably even well studied. Uh, and you have a, an entire chapter called from space to the lab. Um, and I wondered if you could just like kind of walk us through, how do you do your work? 
you know, if if it's about getting actual samples of meteorites, um, understanding that, of course, like I think it's more obvious, like what telescopes are for. But like, how do you as a as essentially a geologist studying meteorites get your samples? Yeah, it is quite an interesting thing. And, and, you know, like you said, there's not that many that are falling uh, that people hear about, but they're falling all the time. People aren't, you know, in uh, dry lake beds where these things fall and are easily found. Uh, You know, meteorites fall pretty much the same rate everywhere on earth. So, you know, whether that's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, or if, if it's in the middle of New York City, these things are falling at the same rate. I mean, that seems like remarkable. I've never seen a meteorite fall. And you're telling me that it's like, common as rain in my house like there's pine cones that fall from my tree but never a space rock yeah those that's that's a good point yeah but again you know we've got something like sixty thousand meteorites um you know in a, in the world's collection and most of those have come from antarctica because people would go down and basically look on top of glaciers to find these meteorites they're more so it's easier to, they, they pop out on the they pop out that's okay. right they, they you know if, if there's a, a large area of nothing but ice and you see a a little dark spot uh it's probably a meteorite it came from above so that's why people go to antarctica to find these things that's amazing (laughs) yeah it's really cool i mean a lot of a lot of my friends in the community have been able to go down to antarctica and be part of these collection trips they do it once a year and they have since uh mid-70s or so but it's not like you could you know have a net out in the ocean i mean it would have to just be an an incredibly large net to catch right (laughs) i mean it's that's what we're talking about. Here. Well, uh, yes, that would be the low tech version. Uh, we actually uh, have higher tech versions of those nets. Um, and they have this, it's really cool, actually. I think in the last 10 or 15 years, they've developed some fireball cameras uh, around the world. And Australia was kind of one of the first to, to pioneer this. So we have like all sky cameras that are viewing. And anytime you have a fireball, uh, then it notes it. A lot of different cameras take pictures of it. Uh, and you're able to basically back calculate not only where it came from in the solar system, but where it landed. And then people, you know, jump on their bikes and go out there and, uh, and go find it. Is, is it like a gold rush? Like do people, is it like, you know, I don't know do people, <laughs> what it happens. Like there are, there are, yeah, there are quite a few people that make a living doing this. Uh, I've got you know, some meteorite collectors, uh, that I, that I work with pretty routinely that as soon as they get wind of a fireball in, you know, Costa Rica or Morocco or you know Zimbabwe, they jump on a plane and they go, and they start looking. Um, and, uh, you know, the faster you find these things, the more valuable they are scientifically because you don't have kind of the, I don't know, input from Earth. You don't have the contamination from Earth. But they're also more vi- valuable, you know, to collectors because, you know, it's it's something fresh and cool in the news maybe. And how much variability is there among meteorites? So, like, let's say you have access to 10 samples are, are they going to be like 10 totally different, you know, c- compositions? Or is it like, well, you know, like 80% of meteorites are made of X, Y, and Z. And then there's like, you know, the odd rare one. Well, yes. So the sec- more more than the second type. So there's, you know, some are, I think it's around 80% actually. So that's a great guess. Are kind of one type of meteorite. They're overabundant uh, in our collections because they survive very easily. They're very you know, robust meteorites. Uh, some of them are, you know, pretty well baked, so they don't break up very much. And probably just their source material was recently broken up. So we are getting a lot of those now currently. But there's a huge variety of meteorites uh, when it comes to 
you know, the kind of breadth of different materials that we have. And, you know, some of these, most people probably think of a meteorite, they think of this chunk of iron. And, and this is actually one of these things that survives really easily that comes through the atmosphere. It doesn't break up. It's just a giant hunk of iron and nickel. So it's not only easy to find and recognize, but it doesn't, it doesn't get destroyed as it comes into the atmosphere. So those are also overrepresented, you know, but so we have these chunks of, of iron nickel, you know, and then you contrast that and that, that actually represents kind of the center of a planet. So that would be like the core of earth only on a smaller scale. So we don't have access to that on earth. So these are really scientifically interesting for that reason. But you contrast that, you know, chunk of iron metal with things that formed in the outer solar system that are 20% water and have these pre-solar grains of fossils of dead stars that existed before our solar system. They contain ices, they contain organic materials. You know, these rocks have never, ever been melted uh, since they were formed. And, you know, that's such a, a wide variety just in those two. And then, of course, we have chunks of Mars, we have chunks of, of the moon, uh, of, of various asteroids. So there's just a huge variety of, of things that are, are found in the meteorite collections. And then we have chunks of Mars or the moon, not just because, well, we haven't sent anyone to Mars yet because that, that's come back, but like because little bits of Mars or the moon have been ripped off by other asteroids and sent to Earth. Is that? And like, like how do you know a piece is from Mars? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's red, right? No, uh, that's not it. No, actually, so the, the way this was found out initially uh, was that there was kind of a group of, you know, five or 10, this was kind of in the late 1980s, meteorites that didn't really fit in with any other groupings that we had. They were, you know, geologically very young when we did uh, dating on them. We thought, okay, these are, these are a little bit different. Uh, there's something, something weird about these meteorites. And then we sent the Viking missions to Mars. And the Viking missions measured the gases of the atmosphere of Mars. And those matched exactly with what was found in those kind of weird group of of 10 or 15 meteorites that we couldn't really put into a different class. And so that was kind of what told us these are from Mars, is that the the gases that were uh, in those meteorites were basically exactly the same as in the Martian atmosphere. So that gets to your point about how they get here is, is something ran into Mars uh, and then kicked off those those rocks that made it uh, made it to Earth, and then of course in that impact they, you know, entrained some of the atmosphere uh, of Mars, and that's why we we're able to kind of identify that's where they came from. Okay, so so okay, so now just to kind of recap one more time, um, Greg Brennica's book is called Impact: How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. I'm going to leave Donkey Kong, uh, not to spoil it, and let people read for themselves. But um, I do, you do make a comment on the book jacket that I still don't understand, uh, and that is nothing on Earth would be remotely the same if meteorites had not intervened, not even Tom Selleck's mustache. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a big fan of that mustache. So why do we need to thank meteorites for that? Well, you know, there's a lot of layers to this, of course. You know, Tom Selleck wouldn't exist if it wasn't for meteorites. Uh, uh-huh. You know, so that's that's the obvious one. Um, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought there was going to be some other, like, cultural thing where, like, you know, I don't know. There, <laughs> that, that mustache does seem to have a life of its own. But um, It does. That's what I, you know, that's, that's kind of how I saw it, too. And I just thought that was, uh, you know, a good way to you know, kind of get the hook in there, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. 
If you'd like an ad-free version of the show, then you could support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.